This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by film reviewer and Acme's new diversity, equity and inclusion advisor, Vaishnavi yeah. Vajayakumar. <laughs> Thanks for the um, amp up. I appreciate it. Oh, anytime, Vaish. I was, uh, I was excited to add that to the notes. <laughs> Um, congratulations. Thank you. And host of the International Pop Underground film reviewer, Anthony Crew. Hi, Felicity. Hey, How do you do? I'm good. It's nice having you back on, on the airwaves, or at least on Primal Screen. Sure, You're on every sure, week. Sure. <laughs> this place. This place, this mm. studio at this time. On tonight's show, we are getting a sneak peek into some of the films that will be showcased at the this year's uh, Melbourne International Film Festival from the festival's artistic director, Al Cossa. Then we're going to whack on the pea plates and get angsty for Mindy Kaling's teen drama series, Never Have I Ever, which is the fourth and the final season of the show. It's currently streaming on Netflix. And finally, we're going to finish up our hour by getting uh, tangled up in the latest edition in the animated Spidey saga, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So MIF, the Melbourne International Film Festival, is just around the corner. It always makes me a little panicky because um, it makes me think, where has the year gone? But mainly it makes me very excited. I thought uh, you were going to say you're panicky <laughs> in advance about scheduling. You oh, know, that does film actually that does freak me out. The yes. <laughs> that also makes me very nervous. But um, no, mainly I, I really do feel like MIF is one of my favourite times of the year. It's a time in which uh, our city is treated to two whole weeks, kind of a bit more actually, uh, of amazing cinema. Uh, and we're now joined by the artistic director of MIF, Al Cossa, to give us a little taster of what is on the MIF menu this year. Al, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, we're a little panicky too because we're <laughs> announcing uh, this first glance. It's 22 films that are coming up at MIF, but we're also putting the finishing touches, uh, putting the bow on the whole All Singing, All Dancing program, which is that kind of monumental time uh, when the work is done, the films are there, the program is complete, and you get to start talking and you get to start sharing them. So it's a pretty uh, amazing moment but it suddenly feels very real oh yeah. you seem so relaxed for uh, a man in those stages of the festival <laughs> oh, over caffeination is a good disguise <laughs> so you have as you say put out the first glance which um, provides us with I think looking at it there was oh, a good handful of films that have already been listed on the website I see that some are already selling fast and that is where my, my panic comes in um, <laughs> talk us through some of uh, the highlights that have been put forward yeah, absolutely. So we've got 22 films announced as part of this first glance. Um, we've also got two galas that are currently announced and are currently on sale. Um, so we're leading this year. The festival starts 3rd to the 20th of August for cinema. Um, we also go to seven country Victorian towns, 11th to 13th and 18th to 20th. Um, and we're all across Australia in your lounge room from the 18th to 27th on Myth Play, which is our streaming platform, uh, which will play a variety of festival highlights and features and shorts packages as well. So for the whole month of August, if you happen to like movies, I suppose you might, uh, <laughs> then you are absolutely sorted. Um, Shader, as I say, is our opening night gala. It will be an Australian premiere at MIF. It is 
uh, the debut feature of Nora Niasari, uh, who's a filmmaker who has had a, a great relationship with Miff in terms of her short filmmaking uh, coming through Accelerators, based in Castlemaine. Um, but this film really has already put her on the world stage because it was an opening selection at Sundance uh, mm-hmm. for its world premiere in January, where it also won uh, the Audience Award for the World Cinema Dramatic Competition there. So it's an extraordinary step onto the stage in terms of features for her. Um, and a, a film we're so proud to support as well as part of our Miff premiere fund too. Uh, the film stars Zah uh, Amir Ibrahimi. Uh, now she was a guest at Miff last year uh, for Ali Abbas's Holy Spider, which was phenomenal and for which she got uh, the best uh, actress at Cannes within competition last year. So incredibly featured um, performer as well. Uh, and she plays the titular Shader. Uh, she is a mother uh, with her young daughter, Mona, uh, and they've removed themselves from a volatile domestic situation. Uh, her husband, um, abusive, and they've, they've gone to a women's refuge. They're looking to, uh, I guess, reset, reestablish themselves and carve out a new life um, within, within Melbourne, within Australia as well. Uh, and they're there with Leah Purcell. Um, she's sort of their caseworker and is looking after them, uh, as well as a full ensemble of the women in, in the refuge, uh, including people like Gillian Newen in there as well. Um, but the ties that connect her to her husband... Uh, remain to a particular degree because the law says they must in terms of access to Mona. Uh, The whole film unfurls over a Persian New Year period uh, in terms of that um, menace of trying to kind of uh, separate and move forward as well as um, a lot of the, I guess, community perception and judgment uh, from the people around them as well. Um, So there are some darker themes there, but it is such an incredible film about strength and resilience and there is so much joy in it. It has an extraordinary child performance and uh, Zami Mia Ibrahimi is just, you know, extraordinary as she always is as well. Uh, so this is a film that we are so proud of as a Victorian film, as a debut filmmaker, mm. uh, and something that we really wanted to put our foot forward with first for mm. opening night at MIF. I'm so glad to hear that you've gone with another Australian film for opening night. I loved last year's opening night film. It was, of course, Goran Stalevsky's Of an Age, which was one of my favourite films from last year. Um, and, yeah, just a fantastic way to get into that spirit and really celebrate Melbourne as a place of, of being the, the city of cinema, I think. Um, you've also got a second gala that's been announced. Is that right? Yeah, uh, that's right. The... That's something special and new and, um, and first announced for this year. It's a music on film gala. Uh, so it's Ego, the Michael Gudinski story. Um, it's obviously, you know, a very defining personality in terms of local music industry. Um, but the thing I think we responded to in this film is when you watch it, yes, you have this kind of this figure in the centre of it who is, uh, you know, iconic and bombastic uh, and larger than life in terms of who he was. Um, but the film itself plays like a total musical history of Australian music for, you know, four or five decades. It's encyclopedic and it's a kaleidoscopic in terms of, you know, you do have a lot of uh, pop and international stars in there. You have uh, Kylie, you have Neil Finn, you have Split Ends, you have Ed Sheeran, Dave Grohl, Billy Joel, etc., etc. It really is sort of star-studded and celebrity-laden, but it's also an incredible time capsule of the music culture of Australia, full stop. Um, and music on film is one of our passions at MIF. It's a strong kind of recurring strand. It can be 15, 17, 20 kind of films. Uh, and so this is something we put forward as well. It's, it's a reason to celebrate. Live music is bouncing back, film festivals are bouncing back and this is again a celebration of an iconic uh, local personality and the music culture that surrounds him and still surrounds us. Now one of the other parts of the festival and I think a lot of festivals are tapping into this is such an important thing to uh, take care of is restorations and you've got a brilliant 4K restoration of a Bellatar film. Um, Bellatar for those who are not familiar is kind of the 
I suppose you'd say the master of slow cinema. Um, and how long is this one going for? I'm, I'm worried. I think it's three hours, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not even that actually. And change. It's 145 minutes. You get oh, 30, that's short. 39 shots <laughs> in 145 minutes. It's not, uh, yeah, he gets up over the 400 minute mark if you want to Instagram for, for some of those. Um, and that's true, he is. But watching this film, I have to say, and this is, this is just me, but. Uh, as sort of iconically slow cinema as this is, it just doesn't feel slow to me because mm-hmm. there's always something to reflect on and respond to in the frame. And I've watched films that are quick cut and quick edit and move, but they're vacuous and there's nothing in them. And those are the things that I really feel slow. So when I watch this, it's just, it's so full mm-hmm. as a cinematic experience. So this is, yeah, uh, Workmeister Harmonies, uh, and it's co-directed as well with his longtime um, editor, Agnes Hrinsky. Uh, I've mangled that name, but never mind. <laughs> um, it's uh, an adaptation of the melancholy of resistance. Um, it's set in a small Hungarian town where a mysterious circus comes to town uh, with a huge dead whale and rumours of a figure called the Prince with kind of a dark following around him. Uh, and it's uh, an analogy really, or it gets quite explicit in terms of the rise of fascism around these elements. Uh, it's monochromatic. It's, as I say, it's 39 shots from two and a half hours. Uh, the restoration itself premiered at Toronto Film Festival last year. And it is one of those things where you just really want to experience it with people in a cinema in all of its kind of grandiosity and ambition. Mm. Um, it is, for me, a really defining film, I think, of the last 25, 30 years. Uh, and it's something we're really, really pleased to share with people. Restorations is, you know, something that's really important to us within the festival uh, in terms of bringing back cinematic treasures, making them accessible, making them seen, um, and creating conversation around great cinema uh, that is beyond the, the the kind of current horizon. And possibly the best way to see those kind of films. I, I feel like whenever I have watched slow cinema, um, when I've tried to watch it at home, it's just quite not quite the same experience. And there's something about committing to those two, three, sometimes seven-hour films <laughs> that uh, you need to see it in a cinema and you need to put your phone away and just concentrate and sink into that world. Um, and so experience the restlessness of yes. other people around you yes. as the guy in Verkmeister <laughs> Harmonies walks around in circles yes. you know, in the unbroken cuts. Count, count walkouts or <laughs> whatever yeah, yeah. it is. I'm, I'm old enough to have seen Verkmeister Harmonies at MIF the first time it showed like wow. 25 years ago and yeah. still remember you know, the, the people getting tense as it went on. Yeah, and also, oh, sorry. I was going to say, yeah, there there are always dramatic scenarios like that. I remember in 2011, we played the Turin horse and that was at the Mm -hmm. forum. And I think the electrics broke on that screening. And so about two hours into that film, the whole screen was suddenly splayed with blue and orange disco lights. And so there was (laughs) almost a cinephile uprising in that movie theatre. I actually love that. I feel like a lot of festivals, and Cannes is a great example of this, of, of kind of a badge of honour of how many walkouts you can get. And not that that will happen to me, if I'm sure, but I just find that really interesting how we're starting to use that as a marker for horror films or really uncomfortable cinema. Um, yeah, audience responses in those festival spaces. It's it's two sides of a coin. It's how long was your standing ovation or how many people walked out of the room. <laughs> Did you find just recently, and that comment about the standing ovation, how one film when it was, I think, four minutes, the... Um, oh, new Indiana Jones and then another film that was five minutes and, you know, one got lauded as a failure and the other one got kind of uh, – sorry, got um, lauded as yeah, a yeah. success. I like the, the, I like, I like the thesaurus headlines where it was like a lukewarm <laughs> six-minute ovation for Indiana Jones or a tepid six-minute ovation. Yeah. 
I don't know if I've ever stood and clapped for anything for six minutes. No, you know, tap I'm it not or a, not. No, I'm not a stand and clapper. But I do feel like at MIF screenings, I have been in some where people just applaud at the credits. And, yeah. it was, and, and I find that really interesting. You can tell they're really true appreciators of cinema and the craft of cinema. I think it's very sweet, actually. I do like that. I do like that when you're sitting in the MIF crowd. And this happens at a lot of festivals, actually. But yeah, that kind of little clap at the end. Like, I hope everyone enjoyed that. <laughs> but you've kind of got a, something for everyone, which we were joking off air about um, my love of sports cinema, The <laughs> Slam. Tell me about The Slam. Yeah, The Slam <laughs> is a world premiere at MIF. It's, it's Iliba, who uh, recently directed The Leadership in 2020. Uh, and this is really, I guess, the definitive account of the Australian Open uh, in terms of, I guess, you know, as a sporting event, but beyond that, I guess, as a prestige, almost nation-building spectacular in terms of putting Australia on the sporting stage globally. Um, you know, the best sports films are ones that go beyond what's happening on the court as to what, how they're received and how they shape, I guess, the society around them and how it responds to that. And that's very much what this film is is interested in uh, because you've got the Australian Open as a setting for social progressiveness, uh, for Aboriginal rights moving forward, but you've also got it as this site of conjecture. I mean, recently for, you know, Novak Djokovic and, and uh, COVID and border control and um, that in terms of segueing into uh, the shape of um, refugee detention on terms of an international stage of commentary. So you have this setting which really kind of pushes and pulls into what it means politically, uh, and also what it means in terms of, I guess, how Australia sees itself. Mm. Yeah, I feel like documentary is uh, an area of cinema that often gets um, a great representation at festivals, but it's so rare that those documentaries then get on to uh, local, like, general release. Um, DocPlay, obviously, is a great resource for those sorts of things. Um, I think the ABC and SBS often do pick up um, a lot of those docos, but I feel as though the festivals, for me, I often end up booking in a lot of documentaries because you're drawing in on people being interested in the subject but also just the filmmaking as well. Mm. Um, I, I have to ask, you know, Sydney Film Festival, it's in full full throttle at the moment. How do you manage to create a program when, you know, you're still in the final touches of this? I'm sure a lot of the films that are premiering at Sydney Film Festival will be screened as well at Melbourne um, International Film Festival. How do you how do you hold on to a sense of um, uniqueness and, and exclusivity? Yeah, absolutely. I, look, the, the simple reductive answer is it's from the audience because we're always programming for someone and that's that's what we keep in mind. So in terms of what we or how I personally would kind of view MIF audiences or Melbourne audiences, I feel that they are audacious. I feel they're adventurous. I feel that they can, you know, take eclectic and different experiences and make it their own within the festival. And in terms of talking about uh, you know, something like Balatar or, or those kind of expansive slow cinema or tourist experience or, you know, something like La Flore, the Mariana Linus uh, work that's 14 hours long and was one of the first things to sell out a few years back. I, I think MIF festival crowds kind of go where you lead them. Like mm. they're happy to take a risk and take a jump and experience something that they never would anywhere else. And that's sort of a joy and a privileged program for that kind of level of eclecticism. I kind of feel like you can push them out at the edges and there's interest to kind of follow. So we have a program and it's usually around the scope of 300, 350 films. Um, and some of those are very much 
broad populist works. They're open doors to the program because the program can be so overwhelming. It can be such uh, an avalanche of movies that you need to welcome people in somehow. And then you need to build their curiosity and their confidence in terms of how you design things. And I think what I love about the program is that it could be completely different for me or for you or for any of us in terms of forging a path. So it's how do you create that state for people that makes them not only love myth but love film more. Mm. It just grows that confidence in what they want to watch given I think what we can watch is so limited um, and a festival is the key to kind of broadening those opportunities. I've always found that plurality, that kind of vastness to be almost the defining element of the film, its size, and to be a huge positive. I know that people talk about it being overwhelming or too much, but I, I've always thought that it was, it rewarded people pursuing their own path. And because I'm possibly vaguely psychotic, I usually try and watch a hundred films per, I know this. per myth <laughs> and I've always thought it was really interesting that I could watch a hundred things and there could be someone else who could theoretically watch a hundred completely different films and that, that we would have a completely <laughs> different experience within this one grander I, setting. I really need to understand how you find the time to watch a hundred films please. <laughs> how do you do it? How do Shout you do out it? to the myth publicity <laughs> team. Years and years of feeding me with screeners. I think we should also mention you should shout out your um, Twitter handle because you do you do post um, if you feel comfortable. <laughs> what is it? I At always feel film deeply uncomfortable. I believe it's Film Crew Myth. Yeah, I think that's mm. right. <laughs> but no, Crew, you are you are very good with putting up posts. I, I feel as though that's one of the things I've really loved about Myth is that interactivity and one of the ways we get that is through the Festival Hub. Is it going to be a Festival Hub this year? Do you have a venue space? That yeah, we've got a Campari Cinema Club that's unfairly, unfilling within the Acme space and different kind of activations around that. Um, this year we're in the city, we're in the Asta, and then we're across Victoria as well. So it's it's pretty expansive um, yeah. and there's lots of opportunities to kind of be part of it from every angle. Oh, fantastic. And one of the things, we've talked a lot about the breadth of this project um, uh, festival, but one of the things I've always really loved is that you do seem to work it into different threads and have festival ambassadors who have picked their own films that kind of guide you through. So if you feel like, oh, you've, I've got similar taste to that person, you could almost just copy, uh, which I have done in the past, all their picks. <laughs> and then you kind of, like uh, you were saying, Anthony, you can actually have a, a film experience that's quite ex- close to that person. Um, are you are those ambassadors and threads coming back? Yeah, those ambassadors are, are coming back. Um, also, I mean, last year as well, we kind of went almost a step beyond that and that we had presented uh, MIF ambassador screenings within the festival. So we had uh, Justin Kozell presenting uh, Richard Flanagan's The Sound of One Hand Clapping off 35mm in uh, Acme with a, a wonderful kind of conversation afterwards. Uh, and we're looking to do, oh, I think, maybe a couple, an ambassador screening and maybe a, a Bright Horizons competition juror screening um, within the course of the festival just to get those people front and centre in terms of presenting what they're passionate about as well. Well, if you have just tuned in and you want to check out the program, uh, you can head to the first glance. So just a few films have been uh, revealed uh, for MIF. Uh, it's going to be in cinemas from the 3rd to the 20th of August uh, in regional Victoria from 11th to the 13th and the 18th to the 20th of August and online from the 18th to the 27th of August. So head to mif.com.au to keep up to date with announcements. Al, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. The fourth and final season of the Netflix teen series, Never Have I Ever. Vaish, you have written a whole bunch about this show, which I've enjoyed rereading 
for listeners who are not familiar with the series, um, tell us about it. Um, so it's, as you mentioned, a young adult series which stars Maitreyi Ramakrishnan as Dervi Vishwakumar, a first-generation Indian-American teenager whose life is impacted by a devastating event when her father passes away in front of her eyes at a school concert. Um, and the story follows her emotional growth, dealing with this grief, um, you know, figuring out dating, family life and friendships. The series is co-created by Mindy Kaling and Lang Fisher and Lang Fisher's also done um, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Mindy Project as well. Um, I really love this series, which is probably why I've written about it um, (laughs) so much. And when it first came out, I really connected with it. And so many of my um, pals who are first and second generation migrants or people of South Asian heritage um, really connected with the series and and so many moments that were so reflective of experiences that are almost like verbatim um, Mm. had happened to us while we were growing up um, on this country. Um, And I was watching it because it's a very specific kind of Tamil experience, which is um, a language that's spoken in the south of India, but also in Sri Lanka. And so often when they would speak in language, um, you know, like you, you feel that personal connection because that's how you speak when you're at home. You speak in language to your parents um, or your family members um, and all those different aspects of trying to navigate um, living in another country that's separate from your heritage and and how you kind of navigate those two worlds and how they kind of cross over as well. Mm. I just, yeah, I thought this um, final season was such a fitting end to the series. There's so much nostalgia when you watch it and, you know, reflecting on your own teenage years as a, um, as a young person. The soundtrack is always, like, really on point and really strong. And I feel like um, with this final series you do get a, a sense of closure on all the characters and I think it's just a really sweet way to end a really great series. Absolutely. I'm going to play a little trailer for people just to get a taster of the show. Well, we did it. Yep. We had sex. Okay, well, uh, catch you on the flippity flip. Doesn't anyone dance in this town no more? Why am I the we're finally seniors, and honestly, I think we're doing pretty great. Now that I've done the deed, I can focus on what's important. Princeton! I think we've really grown to being the poised, fearless women we always dreamed we'd be. Oh shit, there's Ben. Hide me. So as a teen drama, it of course has a big emphasis on, you know, the characters losing their virginity, um, all the different crushes that happen, um, but also their school grades, uh, what what university they're going to go to, or college. Sorry, I always get confused in America. It's college, the same right? thing. It's the same like, thing, yeah, okay. <laughs> they're, they're universities, but they call them colleges. It's very confusing. Yeah. Uh, and heaps of great tracks as well. I was, I, 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 like I said, I played Primer just a clown before, but I was just absolutely spoilt for choice for tunes this week because there are so many bangers in this TV series. So, Vaish, I have to admit, I had not, uh, this had gone, slipped right under my radar. So I had not watched it. I, I basically binge watched a whole heap of seasons. Oh my God. <laughs> I've been a bit unwell. So I was like, yep, I'm just going to lie in bed and, and watch it. Um, it was a fantastic way to just do a deep dive into this series. I, I um, you going to say it was a fantastic way to get better. <laughs> Paxton Hall yeah. Yoshida just brought your health levels up. You know what though? It did bring my mood up and it made me think of a film that I had recommended to me uh, ages ago um, to all the boys I've loved uh, before. Uh, to all the boys I've loved before, which is um, yeah. based on the book by Jenny Han. Yeah. 
really similar vibe. And yes. um, again, a, a movie that was not on my radar. I was just like, I don't know about this. I loved it so much. And I just thought really similar territory. I love the main character of Davy. She's just like, she's she's a fantastic anti-hero because she makes so many decisions where you're like, oh, don't do that. Or she just owns it though. And she's got great comic timing. The casting is exceptional. Uh, and I, I just really liked her as a character. Uh, the other week we reviewed Sweet As, a Jub Clerk's new film, um, Claire's new film, and I... I just thought really interesting having teen girls at the centre, which I feel like there's a bit of a trend towards that, but it's been a while since they've had such domination on both the TV screens and cinema screens. Um, I sure. looked straight at you, crew, for that. <laughs> My mind just went straight back to the glory days of Bring It On. <laughs> Kirsten Dunst's high school years, crazy, beautiful. But. But the the issue with those, they were all white girls. Like Mm. so many of those films. And I grew up watching those as well. And like I remember that being really the only kind of teen that we would see on screens, Um, heaps of um, blonde white girls. Uh, And that's changed quite a lot, I reckon. And I think that's why this feels so different um, because you do see a character that's not often centred in these kind of stories. And I love how you called her, um, I guess, like flawed. She is inevitably. (laughs) making very flawed decisions Um, she's a bit of a car crash in scenes in the most like uh, beautiful way like in the most beautiful way and I think you know like I kind of relatable yeah like I was like I'm like we all made stupid decisions when we were teenagers and I, I kind of find that endearing but what I love the most is her emotional growth across the four series like when you first meet her she's had this devastating um moment and she's still really grieving um her father and it causes her to act out in these really, um, like, I guess, um, problematic um, and um, challenging ways um, and, and I guess, angry and aggressive ways. And I think just seeing her growth in trying to come to terms with that, making better life decisions and and just growing as an individual and maturing as an individual, it's really beautiful to see that that kind of character arc and, and you kind of feel like even the actress herself, like, seeing her grow up through this series as well and evolve. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. And I think one of the things that Mindy Kaling is really good at is, like, casting very attractive men. And, <laughs> like, like, they're, like, we were um, – I actually had a watch party with it, um, with this series um, with, with a few friends on Friday and, and that was the one thing we all agreed on. It's like every new man that comes on the screen <laughs> is incredibly good looking and she is very good at casting them. So. There, is, there is definitely a lot of um, wish fulfilment going on uh, having a very uh, nerdy nerdy girl get with the attractive jock, I feel as though. Um... <laughs> I guess one thing that I liked about the, the, the series and probably the way that entertainment has been trending in a lot of ways is that no one ever really just is left to inhabit their stereotype. Mm. So you meet these characters. It's very familiar from teen movies. There's whatever, you know, there's jocks, there's nerds, blah, blah, blah. But over time, it's allowed them, uh, it's allowed characters to have complexity and contrarian. And they can be the really hot, you know, uh, a guy on the swim team who takes his shirt off. And yeah, his granddad was also held in a Japanese internment camp, mm. you know, during Second World War. Mm. And it's, it's just those kind of touches which mm. separate it from, I guess, the teen entertainments of yore. As well the idea that you, you touched on that the main character is allowed to kind of be a total prick at times yeah, so totally like is, yeah. as as someone who who owns a teenager of my own and was once a teenager like 
people who are like 15 years old are usually actually pretty horrible. And <laughs> ideally by the time you get to 17 or 18, it's like you, you've come more into yourself and you, yeah. you know, you kind of, uh, that's almost what the arc of this show is. And there's also, I have to say, again, I think this is a trend towards um, greater um, awareness around talking about sex on screen, but uh, real sex positivity in this in this TV series. And there's, you know, slut shame is, is acknowledged and it's kind of a bit of a narrative point, but it's not the main thing that happens. And it's not, you know, it's acknowledged, but also kind of worked through. And I kind of love that They've got that in there. And well, it's, the moralising um, is done by characters within the show as opposed true. by the makers of the show yeah. where, like, you know, the classic 90s uh, home and away kind of thing, a character has sex once and gets pregnant. You know, it's like that's this sort of external moralising yes. to teach kids not to have sex. And yeah. gladly that cultural paradigm has died, you know, long ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like it's actually quite reflective of teenagers now. Like te- teenagers now are so well-versed, more so than I feel like, I ever was as a teenager in all of the social nuance of all those kind of conversations around sex and race. And I, and I think that comes across in the show. Like the dialogue is really strong. It's really funny. It's really witty and, and often references pop culture. Like I think one of the opening um, scenes is like, oh, did you have euphoria style sex, you know? And I kind of really <laughs> love that moment because that's such a, um, you know, darker and different portrayal of um, teenage angst than what Never Have I Ever is. So I definitely really loved all that intertextuality that is strewn oh, throughout. Oh, when the characters get obsessed with watching Riverdale. Yes! Like, what is this? Is this a murder mystery? Is this a high school show? I don't understand it, but I must keep watching. I'm actually pleased that the two two things that we're reviewing tonight have a huge amount of, um, they're very meta, and there's a lot in there to unpack. Um, there are four seasons of Never Have I Ever. Um, I do like the fact that they have decided to end with a realistic amount of time of them being in high school like it's it's not like those never-ending shows where you're just like hang on they look like 35 why are they still talking about crushes and and things like that and and homework um four seasons though it's a pretty um it stayed pretty solid I feel like through throughout the four seasons what's your yeah what's your take like I feel like it is so consistent and and after like I watched like the final season. I just binge watched all of the others again just to <laughs> reconnect. And I just felt like, yeah, it just felt so consistent in terms of its tone, in terms of the story and um, the way that it, um, yeah, like shaped the, the story arc of each season. Like there was always some kind of focal point that that demonstrated the growth of each of the characters. You know, everyone kind of had their um, focus moment, um, which I really loved. And um, one thing I did notice when I um, went back and watched it was that the final song um, at the end of season two was Kylie Minogue's Say Something, which was um, actually she launched that in 2020 just as the pandemic was hitting. So it was this beautiful like disco song and watching that at the end of um, season two when um, Davey and Paxton, um, you know, finally kind of get get together um, at at that point. um, It it was just such a fitting tune. It was just such a beautiful, yeah, beautiful end. I feel like this very much fits into the feel good uh, TV series or or films that we've kind of covered in this discussion. Um, I feel like I'm outside maybe the demographic but I enjoyed this immensely Karu I don't know how did you feel I'm um, well I watched it due to my child uh, yeah. but 
I mean, the persistence of high school as a setting for stories is because of its universality, how strong and resonant an archetype it is for people, no matter how how far beyond high school. It's like we still all hold all these uh, often anxieties, you know. I have anxiety dreams still set in high school because, <laughs> you know, what better symbol of anxiety than such? So uh, I don't know. I don't I, it didn't feel to me like it's obviously not made for me, but I, it didn't feel alienating. No, know? and the humor is 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 pretty great. Like the, the it's a great script, great actors. Um, I think very enjoyable watch. Uh, but it also kind of like you said, Vaish, underscored by this story. It's actually the the starting point of this is is a place of grief for the main character. So really interesting to see her go through that process and also through therapy. And the therapy sessions are part of the narrative as well. Totally, and, and Nisi Nash is. So- so great in her role as this kind of like Beyonce-esque like boss-like <laughs> therapist um, and you know like I think even just normalizing seeking therapy for for an experience like that like you know particularly in South Asian cultures and different migrant cultures therapy isn't something that's always normalized as something you seek to to come to terms with grief mm. and I think the fact that that was shown is just so important mm. um, and I really yeah I love that I, I even just the yeah like I, I think the the grief part really struck a chord with me, um, particularly because like my dad has also um, passed away. So like I would often just watch some of those scenes and just like cry. Like you know, it, it feels really um, feels really visceral. And and so many of those experiences that she had around like you know seeing her dad and like imagining that he was there. Like I think a lot of people who've gone through grief really mm. do experience that. And even um, in the at the end of the final season when she scatters her dad's ashes at the beach, like I I did that with my sister and my Mm. uncle and like yeah it's all these moments that feel just so tethered I think to to my own life and Mm. I felt like she just captured it so accurately and beautifully Mm. and I I think it's such a unique series I think Mm. it's brilliant um and we haven't even mentioned the fact that it's narrated by John McEnroe (laughs) that is just like so brilliant like it's I think in terms of the narrators they have John McEnroe for Davey and then um Paxton is narrated by Gigi Hadid and then Ben is narrated by Andy Samberg and and it's just it's just so brilliant like to have like John McEnroe voice the be the inner voice of a young South Asian teenager but kind of fitting because I think he is quite um renowned amongst that parent generation so yeah it's somehow works I'm not sure how um but never have I ever it's currently streaming on Netflix and the uh that is all four seasons are on there uh and we recommend that you check it out in our second review of the night Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse so Karu you wrote about the first chapter of this new Spidey saga which was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse for the music back in 2018 which is at the time of its release we're now back in the Spider-Verse for the latest installment, which is getting rave reviews. And the film has 240 characters and takes place over six universes. It's also credited with having the largest crew of any animated film ever with around 1,000 people working on it. Um, (laughs) I believe it is the the longest studio animation feature of all time at 140 minutes long, which is really really unheard of for animation. It didn't feel that long. It felt like a normal There's so much going on. There is, but it keeps you entertained. Well, tell it, yeah. Take us through. What is, <laughs> try to well, do a plot for this. <laughs> uh, where should I start? I would say that for people who think a, a Spider-Man animated movie, like what, I'm not interested in that, or who might think I'm superheroed out, 
this is the exact film to go and see to correct that kind of fatigue. If you're tired of looking at ugly 3D animation or Marvel CGI eyesores or the accursed Disney live-action remakes of their classic animated things, this is a film that uses the expressive possibilities and the elasticity of animation to convey character and feeling and emotion. And every frame is this wild riot of art, essentially. Mm. It's pillaging art history, the history of comic books, uh, you know, the the history of cartoons, uh, both in regards to Spider-Man and just throughout the entire prism of human experience. Like, it's hard to talk about... uh, the way the film looks without just kind of gushing. It's one of the most amazing, beautiful looking things I've ever seen. And every one of its, uh, it it uses the very familiar now multiverse kind of prism, which uh, we're probably all going to get sick of pretty soon. But the amazing thing here is that each, each multiverse is animated in a distinctly different style. And uh, so many of the spider men are animated in their own style. Like there's spider punk who's voiced by Daniel Kaluuya, who is animated in a lower frame rate than everyone else. So his animation moves slower and it's made to look like photocopied gig flyers for punk bands in the 1970s. And he exists in the same world as the 3D animated main Spider-Man, you know, characters that look like 60s cartoons or 90s comic books or or Spider-Gwen who has this uh, amazing visual look uh, in her own world full of watercolour splashes in the background. I'm so glad that you focused in on that. I was probably one of those plebs that was like, I've had enough Spider-Man. I mean, there's been so many revisions and reimaginings of this story. I used to love Spider-Man and I thought, I I just can't watch anymore. Um, I, I... Loved this so much. I loved it so much that I went back and watched the first one that I missed from 2018. Uh, You touched upon already some of the beautiful artwork. This is so much a love letter to animation and the... There's so much detail in it that I I feel as though we could have dedicated an hour to to this film alone. Um, One of the villain the villain is fantastic. Can we just talk about the spot? (laughs) Yeah, incredible. So this character, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, and when he he tells his backstory about how he you know was mutated and became this character, it's told in like uh, black and white you know artistic scribbles, and then he becomes this succession of of black and white uh, ink spots that can you know uh, whatever teleport uh, different multiverses who cares about that he looks incredible (laughs) so amazing and this beauty of having what looks like splashed ink onto these frames and all in 2d everything is 2d it's just so beautiful i i I can't get over it really is a film you have to see at the cinema um also the soundtrack's amazing we played played some of that before it there's just so much in it and there's all these references not just to um, within the animation, but thinking about culturally, and you touched upon uh, Spider Punk, who's one of my favourite characters in this. But like that that use of like the photocopier sort of image and that grayscale, just amazing and so well thought out. And I love that they've given so much thought to what could be reduced to a kids' film or, or kind of fobbed off in that way. Um, of course, you know. You've got the same people who worked on. Was it a different team, isn't it? This no, time around. Uh, okay, so I'm confused by. So it. there were three directors on the first film, and there's mm. th- three different directors on this. Oh, I would is. say the okay. ri- the writer producers of these two movies are Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who are the people behind the Jump Street movies and the Lego movies. That's where it sort of gets its uh, you know irreverent, sarcastic tone from. So they seem like the kind of creative brains they wrote and produced this film, but 
the yeah the directors are a completely different set of people they've talked about the animation process as being like playing in a band you know it's this hugely collaborative thing and the directors uh, bring different elements together mm. which kind of really goes contrary to notions of auteur theory or the singular <laughs> genius but any motion picture is a hugely collaborative experience and with these films you really see it there on mm. screen like no one person could be responsible for the wild visual mayhem at play the the visuals are so amazing i i hadn't um watched the first one so like i'm going into this i guess kind of fresh but like i loved how it felt like a graphic novel or like a comic it really lent into that really well each frame just felt like exciting i was so drawn into the plot and the excitement and like you know the 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 story behind all these characters i was just kind of at the edge and when it ended i was like no (laughs) yeah it ends on a cliffhanger the third one is apparently coming next year yes yeah beyond the spider-verse i like that they've really um with the titles they kind of tell you where they're at it's an easy one to pick first second and third we should also mention the fact that there are so many films that are acknowledged not just comics films on spider-man that are also acknowledged within the film so we do see toby Maguire, andrew garfield pop up we also see donald glover come up um obviously as Pr- uh, prowler um there's all these different references so they're so knowing it's not just within the humor it's also in the visual space of what we're seeing around us and the world building uh or multiverse building i don't i don't know how to talk about it um but i think that at the core the reason why this works and it's not all these fancy tricks and all of this artistry around it because it's a really relatable and it's just a solid story at the core and it plays around with that it's really detailed and and very layered in the best use of that word in sense of like it's meta, but not in a, a kind of tricksy way, just in a really clever, thought-out way in that the – I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> it's really hard to talk around this, but there are so many layers to it and they've thought it through. And I just feel as though there's something so satisfying about a film that perfectly executes narrative plots it's, and, it's and very, does it in a way that's it's clever. It's very beautiful and sincere at times. I think the reason that Spider-Man has persisted, that you, you lamented the you know how often uh, this kind of, But I think Spider-Man, the teenage protagonist, is one of the most perfect symbols in the superhero canon because it's everything he's going through is, you know, whatever, a symbol for puberty, essentially. And in this film, you have the the, the two main spider people, uh, Miles Morales, who's voiced by Shamik Moore, and Spider-Gwen, Gwen Stacy, who's voiced by Hayley Steinfeld. And they came together in the first film and they were like best pals and maybe there was a romantic interest. And then they're separated into their own universes at the start of the second film. And each of them wants to essentially come out to their parents to mm. say, this is who I really am. Mm. This is my real identity. And they're really struggling with that. Like, you, It's not even a, 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 a double narrative, this idea of it existing as a coming out story. It's like right there in the text. Well, and it's really yeah. easy, sorry, to, I, no. uh, to identify with those adolescent feelings. I mean, we talked about the high school setting before with Never Have I Ever. It's still so strong there with Spider-Man. And they also really, really beautifully uh, draw... Uh, Miles Morales's parents in this film and there's a mm. great speech where his mother is with him on the rooftop and she's essentially saying like I'm not being overprotective I just know that the world isn't going to love you like I love mm. you and I don't want to let you out there just to get hurt and I mean mm. that's a very universal parental sentiment about mm. having to give a child their their freedom and go out and make their own mistakes and get fuck, fucked yeah. over by the world. No that's so beautifully captured and I think that the 
also another part of it is just that creative rebellion and we're seeing that on the screen we're seeing that in the characters and that that kind of desire to express themselves is coming from that place of being closed in and pretending to be someone that they're not so it's really like just beautifully that's what I kind of mean there's there's all these steps to it that they just do such a good job of encapsulating and making sure that it's grounded to a reality that allows for them to skip through to all these crazy characters and whatever it was 240 240. (laughs) I I, I actually don't know how they kept track of all of the different multiverses that were like involved I'm like there are so many different worlds here then they've kind of built them all really beautifully and they all felt Mm. really unique and I actually really loved how they centered on um, Miles Morales's and um, Spider-Gwen's characters as like empowering young people with this kind of sense of yeah a lot of responsibility to, to, to save the world or save their particular universe and, and and I think that that empowerment of young people I really I really love seeing that centered um, in this film and and also how they were quite meta about the model of the forming of a superhero it's like mm. it, you know it takes a devastating event um, you know we see it across <laughs> like DC comics like Batman as well a devastating event then you know creates the formation of this superhero and that's how their journey kind of starts and and I really loved how that was carried out in all the different multiverses mm. across the different spider people but it, <laughs> it also kind of calls show. that into question like we, yeah. we talked about the antagonist being the spot voiced by jason schwartzman and there's also this sort of spider cop voiced by oscar isaac miguel o'hara spider-man oh, 2099 mm, yeah. who's kind of he's you know jokingly <laughs> referred to in there as the only spider-man without a sense of humor and you know he's he's sort of like this time cop wanting to keep all the strands of mm. the multiverses in but the real villain of the film is the they speak it aloud is the idea of canon. Yes. And that's kind of a very dirty or very loaded term uh, in the world of, you know, fan discourse, comic books, uh, you know, Marvel mm. movies or whatever. Here canon is defined as the events that have to happen. So the, in this Spider-Man's case, the tragic formative influence that, that kind of like shapes the young person. But in essentially what they're saying, and this sort of speaks to like Lord and Miller and they're kind of impish, you know, poking at things, is like that the villain of this story is the domineering persistence of storytelling tropes. And both of the main two characters, you know, Miles uh, Morales and Gwen Stacy, call that into question. Like, why why do I have to suffer a tragic mm. loss? And it's essentially sort of mocking this idea of these uh, comic book tropes, which are used over and over mm. and over and over, like the death of a person just to see how it reflects back mm. on the protagonist. You know, Goose in Top Gun style. <laughs> I love that you fitted that reference in. But also it kind of also seems to reference a lot of the gatekeeping that happens as a fan, fandom level and I, I love that there's that duality there. Yes, yeah. there is the canon but there's also the fact of the, the fans jumping on board saying, yeah, you could make a case, you got to do this. You could make a case that that Oscar Isaac character essentially <laughs> is like a, a symbol of the gatekeeping fandom where he's like, no, this has to happen. You yes. can't go rogue. You can't be different. You have to abide by these edicts. Yeah, yeah. I actually find the different unique kind of characterizations of each of the different spider characters so interesting. Like you look at like Batman, you know, there's like Batgirl, Batwoman, Robin, like, you know, there's all these different kind of subsidiary characters that sit around the formation of Batman. But here, like each of the different spider people have like their own kind of unique character, their own, they don't 
all look the same. They well, all don't carry the I'm sorry same, to yeah. jump in, but how did you feel about uh, Pavita Prabhaka, you know, Spider-Man India, who exists in this wild mashup of, of kind of Mumbai and Manhattan? I actually really, really loved it. Like, I just thought it was so cleverly done to kind of integrate um, this character and all of the cultural aspects of that very busy, bustling Mumbai um, as a city so beautifully. Um, and even just the cultural aspects of, like, um, him, you know, kind of dating um, someone <laughs> And then as soon as his, like, dad pops up, he's just like, no, we're not dating. We're not doing anything here. You know? I, well, his character is fantastic because they actually based a lot of his fighting style moves on um, uh, Indian martial arts. Uh, I'm going to mess up the spelling, the pronunciation. I, I may not try that one. But um, based in Kerala. It's like 2,000-year-old fighting style. So they, they mapped that movement onto I just love I don't know. I'm, as a film nerd, I'm, like, obsessed yeah. with that and little I, detail. I read about <laughs> apparently the, the look of, uh, of this, uh, you know, what's it called, Mumbatan, this um, mum. Yes. This Mumbai Manhattan mashup was based on the look of Indian seventies comic books. Like they oh, went maybe. through, yeah, and wow. they used this particular kind of like slightly off, you know, like the printing, the doubled printing, or the printing yeah. that's slightly mismatched. Well, if you can't tell, we we all loved Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, and it's currently playing at all major it's cinemas, playing everywhere. You can't <laughs> avoid it, all you over are. the universe. <laughs> you have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Anthony Crew, Vaishnavi Vijayakumar and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show, we got a sneak peek into some of the films that will be showcased at this year's MIF uh, from the festival's artistic director, Al Kossa. Then we reviewed Mindy Kaling's teen drama series, Never Have I Ever, which is currently streaming on Netflix. And we finished up with the latest edition in the animated Spidey series, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> Sorry, a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, but before we wrap up, uh, there is an excellent screening and Q&A coming up at Thornry Picture House next Tuesday as part of Unknown Pleasures. It's called Dancing Shadows and features 10 short films by film artist Erin McCuskey. It's going to be followed by a Q&A. Um, for full details, you can head to thornburypicturehouse.com uh, .au maybe? Uh, <laughs> I should have checked that. Um, but yeah, uh, .au, yes. Uh, and this Thursday is the very last screening for the Wong Kar Wai retrospective at Cinema Nova, so head to cinemanova.com for uh, the full details. Well, <laughs> I've got through Click, do you need to just take a breath? I, I can do. take over if you want. Uh, well, I would like to, to go, though. I'm going to thank you for having me on as opposed to the other oh. way. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 